0: Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH FM. I'm Sherry Alexander. And this week we're talking to Jason Berry, author most recently of a book, City of a Million Dreams A History of New Orleans at Year 300. Welcome back to Writers Forum, Jason.
1: Thank you, Sherry. Very good to be here.
0: Well, we always love to talk with local boys, Jesuit boy, Georgetown. Uh, you've you really you're a writer, you're a film director. You you wear many hats.
1: I have to make a living. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we I know you you're eager to talk about your new book that's coming out, and you also have um, a, a movie coming out, a uh, front with the book. But we just have to talk about. Um, what's in the news this week? You you wrote this trilogy of books, and before that, many many um, articles and so on about the unfortunate situation in the Catholic Church involving pedophile priests. Uh, your first one, I think, was "Lead Us Not into Temptation," and that was when
1: 1992.
0: So that's been a long time, and you've you've even revised it.
1: Well, there's a new edition out, yes. Uh, it's, it's pretty much been in print, I guess, 26 years. Uh, and I was a decade ahead of the Boston Globe, although I didn't have as much information as they did about Boston. But um, And the Spotlight team did tremendous work, certainly. And then I did another book uh, in that realm, uh, Vows of Silence, in 2004, Uh, about the Vatican's mishandling of cases. uh, And the Legion of Christ. And Father Maciel, the founder of the Legion of Christ, who is a rather dark figure in the history of the modern church. And And you made
0: a film for that one, too. I
1: did. I produced a documentary based on that uh, book, which took four years to do. And by the time I finished it, the story had had moved uh, farther along. Uh, And then in 2011... uh, Well, I did a novel in between, Last of the Red Hot Pappas. I love that. Thank you. (laughs) It's probably my favorite book at this point of mine. Uh, And then in 2011, I did Render Under Rome, The Secret Life of Money in the Catholic Church.
0: Well, that one was amazing to me. I had no idea of the money situation behind the church. And I think many, many people have no idea um, of how money works in the church.
1: It's not very well regulated internally, I think one could say with a little charitable understatement.
0: Well, understatement, I think you said something like a billion dollars is embezzled all the time
1: or something. Well, I don't recall the exact figure. The book came out seven years ago, but the thing that struck me most was that Peter's Pence, the annual charitable donation to the Pope, uh, had been going for many years to plug the Vatican deficit, and the Vatican Bank was having convulsions when uh, Pope Benedict uh, retired or resigned and uh, Pope Francis uh, then emerged from the conclave. And it slowly seems to have gotten its footing. But, um, you know, the church is the largest organization in the world and it is not an easy organization uh, to control or to run.
0: Now you have some suggestions for reform.
1: Yeah, I, I did a piece in the Washington Post uh, some weeks ago, and I said that the, the what Francis needs really is to establish uh, an independent criminal judiciary at the Vatican that would have oversight on all bishops, and that would relieve him of the responsibility of having to be a, a global police chief, if you will, of uh, errant bishops. Um and they do need to get much more realistic about the kind of men who have been admitted uh, to seminaries uh, in recent years. I think the celibacy law is uh, woefully outdated and could be changed with the stroke of a papal pen. And I think it would uh, it would not solve the problem, but it would go a long way toward bringing in, I think, a a healthier sensibility about ministerial life coupled with a broader role for women as deaconesses.
0: Before we leave this topic and get to your new book, um, just one point I want to ask you about. You have remained a loyal Catholic?
1: Not everyone would say loyal. (laughs) (laughs) I I do go to Mass, and it's a struggle.
0: It must be um, interesting to see it from the point of view of someone who knows... The dirty laundry side of a church?
1: (laughs) Well, I I would say this. Um, In 1992, when the first of the three books came out, any number of people locally whom I had known or who were friends of my parents, who of course were still alive at that time, uh, would kind of, you know, not make eye contact or If I entered a room, they would move over to one side. I mean, you know, I could feel the draft. And, um, you know, a decade later, when the Boston Globe came out with its huge uh, package of reports, people were actually coming up to me and looking me in the eye, shaking my hand, saying, well, you know, you did a good job. So I I, I don't feel an animosity uh, anymore, although there are many bishops who won't return my phone calls. That said, I have not been doing much active reporting on the church for some time now.
0: It's like Mike Wallace in 60 Minutes when they give a phone call. Well, I
1: I, I don't know. I think it's very different being an independent writer and, and having a network and four or five producers behind you uh, I Abby mean, he was obviously he was very good at what he did but um, I you know it's nice to live in a city where you can get your work done and do it well and nobody thinks of you as a celebrity because you're not on the evening news I rather uh, treasure that
0: well you've been on the evening news and you've been in networks and everything like that with the um, this side story to your life that I don't think you realized at the time was going to turn out to be such a central feature of it. But you love music. You you kind of wrote mm-hmm. one of the definitive works, the history um, from the cradle of jazz, New Orleans music since World War Two.
1: Right. And up from the cradle of jazz, actually, well, first came out in 1986. I did it with Jonathan Troos and the late Tad Jones. Uh, and then I did a, a, a revision in 2009. I actually added about 135 pages to it to account for uh, the cultural recovery after Hurricane Katrina. Yes, and I've written the music column for New Orleans Magazine since I think 1994. M- music is uh, elemental to my life. I listen to it uh, on, you know, in the car. I still put CDs in, <laughs> in the car. I, wonder, so, I never yeah.
0: thought of this. Are you a uh, musician at all yourself? No.
1: I can't even carry a tune. My <laughs> wife jibes me about that all too often. I
0: uh, <laughs> here you are, one of the experts in the world on New Orleans music.
1: Well, you know the definition of expert, don't you? It's a man who gets off an airplane carrying a briefcase from someplace else. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yes, I'm an expert. <laughs>
0: well you certainly um literally have written the book on new orleans music and your new book um city of a million dreams the subtitle of the book is a history of new orleans at the year 300 but you're also making a film at the same time
1: it's a documentary yeah the argument of the book uh, and of course uh, the book goes much deeper in into uh the long hall of New Orleans history than the film. But the argument of the book is that the city's beguiling personality has been shaped by a long recurrent tension between a culture of spectacle and a city of laws, a city officialdom that was anchored in white supremacy for most of our history. And it was the culture that in my rendering, uh, was rooted in in the slave dances at Congo Square which kept pushing against uh, the legal mechanisms of the city. By the time uh, Carnival really begins to take hold in uh, the middle of the 19th century, in a sense it begins to absorb even though it is a a ritual of the aristocracy it can't control what is going on in the streets and uh the african uh, blooded peoples of the city who soon after the civil war of course you know became free and maintained this long dance tradition uh, became a an a, a an integral part of carnival the mardi gras indians the the most striking example, I guess, along with the crew of Zulu. And so I was interested in exploring this tension between culture and the law, the laws that were for so long unjust. And uh, the opening scene of the book is Alan Toussaint's uh, funeral several years ago, which was an affair of state. And it happened at the time when... um, Uh, there were all sorts of opinions being lobbed back and forth about Mayor Landry's plan to take down the four Confederate monuments. And as I observed in the beginning of the book, uh, regardless of which side one was on in that uh, boisterous debate, the city had really changed its position and in a sense had moved into an alliance with the popular culture because so many of the African Americans... Uh, were aghast at what those statues symbolized. Um, I must confess, I fell in love with Bienville. He was such an exciting, extravagant figure.
0: I had never uh, heard before. I mean, let's let's talk about the book. Yeah. You, the book is a, a tricentennial book, and um, you include all the requisites, Bienville and so on. By the way, I've read every book I think I've found about the history of New Orleans, and I don't remember anyone else describing his tattoos. <laughs> but where did you dig that
1: out? Uh, a journal uh, by a French uh, admiral that was translated and published by the Museum in Mobile some years ago, and I came upon it uh, doing research. And I was really struck by this admiral's description of the snake tattoos emblazoned on young Bienville's skin and you know i make the point that the, the the body art that Bienville used to show the native americans that he could fight as fiercely as they in a sense was a curtain raiser to what the city would become this place of people with shifting identities uh, not just <laughs> during carnival
0: i think i could picture the the school kids you know we all have these pictures of bienville in our classrooms and a Putin like picture without a shirt on it. Is there any drawings or anything? No, like
1: that? no. There, well, I mean, there, there was a drawing uh, several issues ago in New Orleans Magazine, but you know, it's a, a contemporary rendering. Uh, but no, there, there are no. There, there's only one known image of Bienville, and it was a painting done very late in his life. Uh, when He had a long retirement in Paris. And he's wearing a wig and looking sort of like a nobleman. It's kind of a trope or a cliché of uh, portrait painting at the time. And uh, they didn't go near the tattoos. Of course, he didn't take his shirt off for the painting. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) Who knew? Uh,
0: And you talk about, you know, everything that you have to talk about. um, But I I felt like your real love of the music and the... um, the funeral mm. marches and so on, was really your in writing. I mean, the spiritualism, but yeah. that ties in with it, seemed to get more of a focus than on... I mean, we've interviewed half a dozen authors. You cite them all, Lawrence Powell and all these people.
1: Larry read the book as I wrote it. Yeah. And uh, so, it was very helpful. Um,
0: <clears throat> so there's lots of people have contributed to the history Um, our understanding of the history, but I think you add that special knowledge of the music and the background and so on, Um, and how we got the idea of these parades. um, Where did we get these idea of these parades for funerals?
1: Well, I think you have to approach parading as a culture and recognize that these are identity pageants. They are the way people tell their stories to themselves and and the wider world. Um, The ring dances of Congo Square were originally burial choreographies, the way in which uh, displaced, uh, uprooted, transported African peoples uh, maintained a link with their past, paying homage to the ancestors. As time passed and the literal memory of Africa receded, Uh, the subsequent generations of dancers maintained the ring as a a sort of uh, archetype. And by the late 19th century, when the linear procession of brass bands has risen to the point where having a military parade for a prominent citizen is, is a commonplace, what you see slowly coming together is the ring and the line the The circular movement of African dancing and the linear procession of the European tradition. And by, you know the early twentieth century, the funerals that we know today, which we today call jazz funerals, the early jazz men call them funerals with music, have become a uh, uh, an established tradition and one in, uh, which allowed African Americans, to, if you will, take over major avenues and streets for several hours at a time. It was both a manifestation of cultural memory, but it was also a powerful symbolic way of uh, demonstrating freedom on the rise.
0: Well, especially you compare it to the um, traditional Mardi Gras parades and the um, white groups, which a lot of (laughs) people today Hmm. might not like to remember, you know, we honor Comus as really one of our most exclusive mm-hmm. uh, organizations in New Orleans, but and they started it all. But you described the parade um, after Reconstruction, where really it was, um, some people could say it was a, a,
1: a... Well, it was racist. It was patently <laughs> <Thank you>. racist. <laughs> I, didn't want I mean, I'm not the only one to say it. James <laughs> Gill did a, a whole book on it, a terrific book. But, um, you know... When you think about what the city was like after the Civil War, um, the real war in New Orleans happened after the war because the city fell in 1862. Uh, It was not well guarded. Uh, The troops fled. And then by 1865, when the war ends, the reconstruction begins with a great promise for uh, the Creoles of color entered public office, desegregated the schools, and were laying the groundwork for a very different kind of democratic government when the reign of violence began. And the old line carnival crews historically were very much part of of that campaign of terror. It it can't be denied. On the other hand, I think one always looks for signs of hope. And uh, one of the points I made near the end of the book is that for a city that is so drenched in symbolism and pageantry, the fact that uh, Rex now goes uh, out to the dock to greet Zulu as he arrives on Gras is a, you know, a sign of respect. And more than that, I think a kind of hands across the table moment where people watching on television or people who are out there see the city trying to turn a corner.
0: People, people that aren't from New Orleans and, you know, millions of people around the world view our Mardi Gras, and we're very glad of it because Mm -hmm. they're all we got, Um, they might not be as aware of the locals are of the history um, that you're talking about, where Zulu actually began more as to mock Comus and the other um, Rex in particular, Rex, yeah. Cruz. It was a form of satire. They they wore yeah. a Crisco can on their head to make banana fun stock. Of, yeah, yeah, being the king, and so what you're saying is, what progress that now they're considered um, equally important members well, Zulu, of
1: the Zulu is a political powerhouse. There, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and you know, Rex, I think has sort of evolved with this idea of pro bono publico for the greater, you know, public good. Uh, They have a foundation that has helped a number of the charter schools. Uh, But in, in a broader sense, I think what New Orleans, I think most people who view it objectively would admit that New Orleans is the American city with the deepest African identity And things like uh, the second line, uh, jazz fest, uh, the various jazz musicians who've achieved renown here, all together form that kind of marketing image or persona for the city. And so in a sense, the efforts of the diehard uh, segregationists and white power supremacists in the late 19th century have have finally ebbed. I mean, there's still a few people out there who are squawking, but they don't have much real power. And uh, the city is growing into a different sense of itself. Um, You know, the identity of many cities, identities, I guess I should say, uh, do evolve as time passes, as neighborhoods change. And I think uh, when you look at the ravages of Hurricane Katrina, the terrible flooding, I mean, we almost drowned on global television. The city today is in pretty good shape. Uh, and is becoming a city of the young, attracting people to the digital commerce, certainly to the authentic uh, uh, cultural uh, reservoirs of the city. Well, all, all you're, to the good. you're
0: part of. Um, uh, you mentioned Mayor Landrews' book that he wrote about his efforts to um, take down the mm-hmm. monuments, which is still very controversial. Even though the monuments are down, there's um, a lot of people concerned and he uh i noticed he thanked you as a collaborator you helped him mm-hmm. you know with the history and everything of his book so so you see it you see all the different passionate
1: people's feelings i i do and i understand where they're coming from uh i well i supported the mayor's position even before he called me out of the blue one day several months later and asked me if i would help him on his book. Uh, I was glad to. Uh, it's very interesting. He would come to my house at 5.15 in the afternoon, driving alone, without a city driver, uh, and we would go about 90 minutes uh, in the interviews. And um, He had written a fair portion of the book himself, several chapters, and then uh, we took the interviews, transcribed them, and, uh, and then I helped him shape the narrative. But it was a pleasure to work with him. I think... Frankly, I think he's going to stand as the best mayor the city has had, um, given the fact that he rebuilt the city after the hurricane, and then even though many people don't agree, taking down the monuments, I think, put us on the right side of history.
0: Well, to get back to your book, please, um, and the (laughs) the
1: film. And the film.
0: (laughs) I love um, the music chapters. I think my favorite was the last days of Danny. Barker. Barker and his wife, Blue Lou. Maybe it's because I'm more familiar with his music. Right. Um, I love save the bones. <laughs> for Henry, Henry Jones. Because Henry
1: doesn't eat no meat.
0: <laughs> um, and Blue Lou's uh, Don't You Feel My Leg. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. just it sums it all up. But you talk about a, a different type of uh, musician, Dr. Michael White, mm-hmm. much more, well, PhD. I mean, it's not right. an honorary music degree. I mean, the man is a scholar.
1: Well, Michael, uh, yes, earned his doctorate in Spanish at Tulane, and uh, while he was in graduate school, he was sort of ushered into the ranks of the brass bands. Actually, it began when he was an undergraduate at Xavier, uh, where he now teaches, uh, by Doc Paulin, who had one of the older marching bands, and I think six of his sons are playing music today. So, Michael came up through the brass bands, and as a clarinetist, was responsible the widow's wail—that piercing sound—that uh, sort of um, echoes the sobbing of the widow at the death of the man who has died—it's a—it's a very intricate role in the polyphony or group instrumentation uh, of the brass bands. And of course, he's gone on to do a lot of composing and a great many recordings himself. He lost everything in Hurricane Katrina, and um, we were working on the film at that time. He is the protagonist of the companion documentary.
0: Yeah, now let's talk about that okay. a minute. That mm-hmm. um, has a different subtitle. It's it's also a, a tricentennial, but it's the untold story of funerals in New Orleans. Is that the working title?
1: That is the, the subtitle. subtitle, yeah. Yeah. Um, Uh, I began filming in 1997. I had (laughs) four Foundation. (laughs) My life is just the Catholic Church keeps interrupting me, and I have to go off and, you know, muckraking pays, what can I say? Uh, And and then I kept coming back to writing about funerals. I would grub stake sometimes, pay for a a camera crew, and then get another grant. Finally, three and a half years ago, I decided I've got to get the film done, and... And I've got to get this book done, and I r- literally had no idea which would come first. Um, but I finally finished the book, and then the financing has slowly come together for the film. But I think we'll have a rough cut by, by you know, by early in 2019.
0: Uh, you had a Kickstarter campaign too. We that did would help you over the hump.
1: It <laughs> yes, one of many humps. We got over. We got over.
0: Well, we look forward to that. Um, is 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 it? Gonna also does the film also include a lot of what you have in the book, or do you think people should need both? Really?
1: No, they absolutely need both. <laughs> 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 they they should read the book. They should give it to their friends. Yeah. They should have book club discussions. a Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I might even make an appearance or two. But um, it, well,
0: when we're taping this, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not exactly sure when it's going to air. But you're going to have. Um, you're going to talk about the book and have some something, what, a clip from the film at Noma?
1: Yes. Uh, uh, well, I think it's November 16th. Thank you. Yes, uh, that Friday night. Yeah, I'm going to be showing a few clips from the film. The film is is uh, has a much tighter lens thematically on the evolution of the city. It doesn't deal with Bienville. It, uh, you know, it does not deal with the Battle of New Orleans. It uses burial traditions as the prism on the uh, evolution of the society in the city.
0: Well, we certainly uh, look forward to that. <clears throat> what about the future of um music here in New Orleans and are you optimistic or
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think musically uh, the 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 city is just an absolute seedbed for young talent. Uh, you, you look at uh, Lily Keeber's new film *Buck Jumper*, uh, *Buck Jumpers*, which is all about uh, buck jumping. I think it's it, it's all about the social aid and pleasure clubs, uh, bounce music, which has uh, an extraordinary appeal to young African Americans, uh, began in New Orleans, and and I think with the instruction now, the teaching that's been institutionalized of music at Noca. Um, I think we're pretty well assured of a continuing stream of younger players, all to the good.
0: Well, as we tape this, your book is just coming out. You're launching it um, this week. Um, there's lots of, uh, you know, advance praise. I'm picking James Garvel just because he's such a sui generous kind of guy. He says, every New Orleanian, including this one, possesses a cultural arrogance that makes us believe our city is more colorful and interesting than your city. We've been taught since we were children that New Orleans has the most rich and nuanced history of any city in the United States. Now that Jason Berry has written this masterful work, I no longer believe my city is more interesting than yours. I know it read this book so you can agree with me.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, James and I are friends. Uh, I I support his views and let the record reflect I did not pay him for the blurb.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to Writers Forum and we want to thank our guest this week, Jason Barry, author most recently of City of a Million Dreams, A History of New Orleans at Year 300. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.